Hello and welcome back to the End of the World Book Club, a podcast about apocalyptic and dystopian fiction. Join me in discovering sci-fi classics, reading climate fiction, and diving headfirst into the huge realm of speculative fiction, both old and new, and all with the theme of the end of the world and what might come after it. Hello and welcome to our very first classics episode. I think this book is a pretty obvious one to start out with, but here's a little confession from me. Until last week, I had never read 1984 and that's okay, but I wanted to change it. That's why I thought today's guest would be absolutely perfect. It is Ariel Bisset all the way from Canada. Hello, Sana, and hello, podcast. I'm so excited to be here because... I love George Orwell. George Orwell is my favorite author. If you don't know anything about me, my name is Ariel Bassett, and I'm a Canadian YouTuber and writer. I'm currently renovating my 160-year-old farmhouse in Canada, and I am sharing that journey online. Animal Farm is my favorite book of all time, but 1984 is up there. So when you mentioned, Sana, that you'd never read it and that you were doing an episode about it, I was like, you must get me on. So excited to be here. And I feel like we need to specify you are here in person sitting across from me. I am right in front of you, which is rare for us because obviously, know. like I said, Canada is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. But here we are in in a very dreary day. <laughs> and very close to the location of, of the book. book. We're just outside of London at the moment. Yes. I really wanted to do this particular classics episode because I think often readers are really interested in books that are like as famous as mm. this one. Um, but I feel like, especially with this one, you can feel this like residual reluctance from maybe being assigned it in school. Yeah. Where you just think it's going to be difficult. You won't get it. Or maybe think it's boring. Have I had all of these thoughts? Not really. I wasn't assigned it in school, I think. <laughs> yeah. I Did I think it was going to be boring? Maybe. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. I'm really excited to talk about this, about what we liked, what we didn't like, mm -hmm. um, why it's still interesting, and hopefully make it a little bit less daunting. That's kind of the whole setup of yes. this. Hopefully you'll finish listening to this and maybe, maybe you'll want to pick it up. A little bit of housekeeping. The spoiler levels will be medium. I like that. I'm doing quotation marks. <laughs> um, we won't give specifics about like the end or any really okay. big yeah. twists. Yes. But obviously we will be discussing parts of the book. So yes. medium spoiler level warning, which yes. I think with classics is usually the right way to go. You know, people say that you can't spoil a classic. Yeah. The intro spoiled me for this book. And I regret reading that at the beginning. So just oh, like you up. read the introduction for your copy. Yes, yeah, so I started never, reading. I never I know. do that. Well, I read the I read half of the book first. I was like, oh, now no. I think I can do a little bit of the intro. And I was like, well, keep an eye out for yes. any spoilers. But it got me. Oh, so, that's too bad. Yeah, 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 it is. It is. I think it's difficult. We want to convince people to read classics, especially like when you've read a classic that you love, you want to convince other people to read it. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes spoiling it is a part of it. Yes. Because you've got to be like, these are the reasons you should read it. And the book is actually so good and mm -hmm. has stood the test of time that even though you know these little spoilers, it's still worth reading. It's still good. Yes. Um, but I think intros to classic editions take that too far. Yeah. Like so many of these people who write the introductions are like, I'm just going to really go in depth. I'm like, these should have been afterwards. They should have been like an essay after I finished the book. And I've noticed that of some of the classic audiobooks, they're putting them at the end. Yes. Which is really good. It's better. I think first of all, we should talk a little bit about our history with the book. I feel like you have a 
a longer history. That's so funny. I'm, I'm going to go first. Yes. Okay. <laughs> My very short history. <laughs> so of course I'd heard about it. I'd heard about Big Brother. I know it's one of the original dystopian novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I followed the YA young adult dystopia pipeline yes. as in many. <laughs> and then after that, you know, I started loving all things dystopian, read a lot of classics. Yeah. But there's definitely a lot that I haven't read yet. It didn't scare me off that it's an intense book. Okay. Because I love reading sad books. Wuthering Heights is my favorite book of all time. Right. I don't mind intense and slightly terrifying. And I'd had a copy of this book for a really really long time I'm not sure if it was that I was a bit daunted by it or that I just wasn't super interested in it yeah that I never picked it up but hmm. this was definitely like a good reason for me to finally read it yeah so that, that is a bit of uh, my history and the only other thing I want to say is that I have read Animal Farm okay yes. your favorite book and I was given Orwell's little essay on like how to write well Yes. Um, when I was interning at Penguin, uh, before I started working in publishing, and it was a Penguin Press, and they say they always give the interns that little essay. Oh, that's beautiful. On how to write well. It's a beautiful essay. And that made a big impression on me for some reason. I was like, oh, yeah. wow, this is, this is very cool. So that is my huh. history with Orwell in 1984, but I want to know what yours is. All right. Well, it does go back to when I was 16. <laughs> We're going way back. Um, I was in high school and I was assigned Animal Farm. That was definitely just my first introduction to Orwell. I didn't know anything about him beforehand. Um, yeah, and I wonder, neither of us are British, but I do wonder if maybe in Britain he's such a character. Maybe people knew about Orwell beforehand, mm. but I, I definitely didn't. So I read Animal Farm in grade 11. I was like, yeah, I think I was 16. And no book has ever made such an impact on me. Like I'd obviously read classics before in school and a few outside of school, not many, but a few. And this was the first book that I ever read it. And I was like, this is genius. (laughs) And like, I don't even know what I could have been thinking as a 16 year old. Yeah. Like why did Animal Farm hit me particularly hard? But I think I loved how short it was, the allegory of it, the idea that just the simple fact that we're reading about animals, but we're not reading about animals, right? I, I just absolutely love that concept. It wasn't until a few years later that I then read 1984. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because I definitely understand and agree with 1984 being the more famous one. Okay. But I still definitely prefer Animal Farm and think that it's a better novel. I just don't, I understand why the other one, like why 1984 is the more popular one. Um, And so then throughout my undergrad and into my master's, I basically mentioned George Orwell in as many of my works and my essays as I possibly could. And accidentally, because for so long, my life and my job was making book videos Mm -hmm. on YouTube, um, it you got just, to mention him a lot. <laughs> yeah, it just, it came up so often that I am definitely living a life now where like on the weekly basis, I am getting people sending me like, have you seen this George Orwell thing? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, thank you for sharing. I do appreciate it. <laughs> it is a dark fandom to be a part of, but. Uh, <laughs> for you are at the core of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am at the epicenter. Um, I just think that he's such a great writer and I always enjoy rereading his books. I think I've probably read um, 1984 like three times. Okay. But I have reread Animal Farm like eight times. Wow. That's that's a lot. It's probably too many. (laughs) But it means you're the right person to talk to. So that's great. Do you remember what your first impression was of 1984 when you first were reading it? I definitely was like, this is 
so spooky because I think I almost even think of it as a gothic novel before I think about it in in other way it's so haunting mm-hmm. and it's so um I I think I can really when I read it and I guess I can't remember if this is how I felt when I was 18 but like yeah. when I first read it and and now like I can feel George Orwell's desperation Mm -hmm. at trying to warn people yes because a lot of the time when i read dystopian i love dystopian which is why i'm so excited about this podcast but when when i read dystopian i can just kind of feel the author exploring a fun setting or an interesting like what if this happened whereas for me orwell and 1984 more specifically feel very like this is happening and it's le- it's bad. And this is a warning. Do you know what I mean? So there's mm-hmm. a, a little bit of a desperation there that I find very alluring because I'm like, this is a person trying to like warn his people. I did feel while reading the book that you were kind of thinking he almost wanted to write an essay. Yes. But then no one would have, not 100%. no one would have read it. But he's like, yes. the people must know. And I will this write one. a story around it that has some very clear messages in it. Yes, and this is the way to deliver that information. Like, this is the way that they'll actually consume it and think about it. Because what a lot of people might not know is that in his lifetime, George Orwell really was not a novelist. He was an essayist and a journalist. He worked for the BBC, he did radio programs, but he also was just writing book reviews and writing essays about politics. And so he really comes from that realm of like writing politically and culturally about the world his novels the two famous novels were written and published in the last few years of his life Mm. and then he very sadly died very young um and so like he wasn't in his mind a novelist i don't think and one of the other kind of funny jokes about orwell is how bad his poetry is (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know there was any yeah exactly like the first thing he ever published was a poem when he was like 12 talking to you i'm realizing how much orwell knowledge is in my little head i did not prep this little fact once again this is why you're here (laughs) but yeah he like published this poem when he was like 12 in his local newspaper or whatever and he published some poetry throughout his life and there is a collection somebody i forget who published it but somebody put together his his collection his oeuvre of poetry and it is comically not good because it's so serious and like right. very literal maybe literal yeah. and like like again like you're saying like he just should be writing essays yeah, yeah he yeah, should yeah. not be writing poetry um but yeah so in that same way i totally agree when you read it you're like this is a guy who writes essays and thinks about things very critically and mm-hmm. now he's trying to make it into a novel two differing levels of success i think um but we'll get to that what we haven't done yet i think and we need to do it before we continue is the 1984 elevator pitch <laughs> to anyone who has heard of the name, sure, but doesn't really know what's in there. Yeah, I think this is such a great and interesting book to get to introduce because so many of the terms that um, get used with these different themes and topics of surveillance and um, and politics and stuff came from this book. Terms like Big Brother, Thought Police, Thought Crime. These are all terms that George Orwell made up. Mm-hmm. And I think often people don't realize that they came from 1984. So this book is set in a dystopian London in the year 1984. Now, this was being written in the 40s, so that for him would have been like quite a ways forward. We've obviously blown past 1984, um, but that's I think, adds an element of fun intrigue yes. to it. It's the story of Winston Smith, 
who is a record changer and destroyer in his world. So basically, he has the task of rewriting history depending on what the government is feeling that day. Um, and so he'll go in, he'll change this person died on this day when they didn't actually, or we're at war with this country when we're not actually. So whatever the, the government wants the propaganda to be, he'll change records and or destroy them. One day, he decides to start writing down his life and reflecting upon his story of how trapped he feels in this really dystopian society. And it's that act of trying to trace what he's doing with his life that makes him start reflecting and thinking about, is there a way I could change the world that I live in? And is that a worthwhile exercise? And what could life be like if it wasn't as dystopian and strict and totalitarian? And so we follow the journey of him trying to meet other resistors and him trying to see like what other options are there. And it, the question is, is he able to or not? I think that's a pretty good pitch. Yes. And <laughs> very light on the spoilers. Thank you. I really didn't want to spoil too much. <laughs> and I think for me, the main thing when I think about describing this book is the the claustrophobic nature oh, yeah. of it because it is very much about like surveillance yes and being in this world where you feel like everything you do everything you say everywhere you go is being watched um and so i feel like that is like the lasting impression yeah of this book i think after you sort of you finish reading it. They have these devices in the book called telescreens. Mm -hmm. And again, remember, this is being written in the late 40s. Yeah. So for context, one of the things that is so exciting about this book is I love, and just classic dystopian and sci-fi in general, mm -hmm. is like when they try and see what will our tech be like in the future. So they've got these telescreens that are installed in every room. And basically the idea is that through those screens, Big Brother can see what you're doing. And yeah. Big Brother is kind of this name for their government. Their government can see everything that you do, can track everything that you do. So nothing that you do is unseen. Yes. And that, like you say, gives the book such a claustrophobic feeling of like, I'm not free. Like you're, there, no character here is free to do anything. And at the same time you go, can they see everything? Right. Or have they been told they very, can see everything? Yes, very panopticon, right? Like, how would they have the technology to do that? That seems absurd. Maybe we're supposed to, like you say, maybe we're supposed to assume that they actually can or just the myth that they can mm. is enough. Do you usually read in this genre or is this an outlier because it's George Orwell? Yeah. You'll read the dystopian, but you wouldn't gravitate towards that otherwise. I love dystopian fiction, specifically dystopian classics. When I was a teenager, just like you were mentioning, I absolutely loved a YA dystopian. So I read, I'm terrible at series. I mm -hmm. have to say, I'm really, really bad at reading series, but I've read the first book of so <laughs> of, many of series. Delirium, The Maze Runner, um, I'm Divergent, you know, like all of the classic YA ones that came out when we were in our heyday of YA dystopian. I, I read that genre and loved it so much. The Hunger Games, of course, really stands out. But then when I went to university, I took a course on dystopian fiction mm -hmm. and in my third year and it was so exciting because it, I then started reading more of these like classic ones. It opened up this whole new genre to me that I was like this is such a fun and interesting and bizarre way to think about what's happening now mm -hmm. by kind of speculating about what might be the consequence of what we're doing now to the future. So no I love this genre and I um 
I will say that 1984 is like what the OG dystopian, not just for the planet, but like for me. Like yes. I read it and I was like, I want more of this. See, for me, I feel like it's now the opposite. I know. It's the most recent one I've read. And I also at university during my master's mm. did a course on uh, apocalyptic and dystopian. It's mostly oh. apocalyptic, but a bit of dystopian okay, as well. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first time I was reading uh, classics yes. in that genre and that was when I read Dave the Triffids which became one of my favorites right it's a great way to just dis- it's fun because sometimes you do a literature course and everything you read you're like oh this is not for me and sometimes you discover your favorite thing yes like you, you didn't know about yes yet. okay so I think we should talk a little bit about what versions we read because oh there there are lots of options with a book like this that's been around for so long um, you've you've got options. So I have the Penguin Modern Classics Edition, which has like graffiti on the front. Mm-hmm. It's not like the cover's not amazing, but I think it does the job. I think they can go more creative with it. Yeah. Um, and it has an intro, hold on, by Thomas Pynchon. Is that how you pronounce his name? I think Pynchon, yeah. Who finally enough wrote the book that I hated most reading at uni. So that's Gravity's that's, Rainbow? Uh, the Crying of Law oh. <laughs> 49, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I read that when I was 20, so maybe I'd reconsider now. But we I just all thought that have was one. A funny combination. I just remember being like, I hate this more than anything else. Um, Miley's favorite was Daniel Deronda. Oh, never read I that. can't even. George Eliot. <laughs> Get it away from me. <laughs> but how I really read this book was Ooh. in audio. Oh my God. And I tried two different ones. Oh no. So I started off with the free audiobook sure. uh, by Stephen Fry that oh, was yeah. on Audible when I had an Audible subscription. Yes. I canceled my Audible subscription yeah. and then realized, oh, that was one of the ones that came with it for free, so I can't listen to that anymore. Oh. So then I bought the Penguin audiobook read by Peter Capaldi from Doctor Who. Of course. And many other things. Yes. But I'm not yeah. familiar with that. It was good. Okay. So I think with the Stephen Fry one, it was a little too Stephen Fry. As in like, I felt (laughs) like I was very aware that I was listening to Stephen Fry. Yes. And I felt like it was taking me away from the book a little bit. Yeah. Although I did think he did an amazing job. Like he read it really well. It was a really good experience. Mm. But then when I had the choice and I had to sort of purchase one. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with this Peter Capaldi version. And it was good. And I liked it. And I did swap a little bit because I wanted to make sure I read it on time. I did like a bit of audiobook. I was like, no, I need to speed it up. And I read a few chapters in the physical book and went back to the audiobook. And I think the audio was very good. How long is the audiobook? Uh, I think it's about 11 hours. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little dense. It was good. I enjoyed (laughs) it. I think if, and I guess that's usually the case with audiobooks, like if you find the book a bit daunting... Audio is a good one to go with. Have, really, you, have you read this in audio before? I have never read it in mm. audio. And I also have not seen the movie version. Oh, I haven't, no, I haven't either. Um, I love John Hurt, the the person who plays Winston Smith. But I, I, I have such a vision of it all in my mind mm-hmm. and a voice in my head of what Winston Smith sounds like that I don't think I want to hear a, an actor portray it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm just like so used to it in my own mind. But... You are totally right that doing a classic audiobook is such a great entry waypoint if mm. you're not finding that you're clicking with the writing. Um, because often the way that an actor will read it, oh, it will just totally pull you in. The version that I always read is the um, Obey Ooh. version, the Shepherd Fairy editions. And That's it's beautiful. just because these were the ones that my high school had. Yeah, you just happen to have them. Yeah. And so I just like those covers and like they feel like my nostalgic covers now. 
Because what I learned from the intro on the text of this one, in the classics one, it said that it basically gave you a bit of a history of all the different editions that there have been and that mm. especially in the early editions, I think the American publisher wanted to hurry up the publication date. So they took a slightly different manuscript. And over the years, obviously, oh, they pick which yeah. version they continue with. But one of the versions had a printing error and it left out the five in the famous no. two plus two is five quote. Okay, that's absurd. <laughs> yes. And obviously, I'm guessing they fixed that <laughs> they later. They definitely will have to. That's, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so that made, it, <laughs> that made it very ambiguous. Wow, that sucks. So that was the fun, like, fun fact I got from the front of this that book. That really changes the entire meaning of it's that. So if it's like two plus two equals, I don't even Out know. Out of all the, like, single like single things to leave out a five really did the trick there for context that quote is really interesting so basically the government is trying it's it's this question of can this totalitarian government make you do whatever it wants and there's this pivotal scene where they keep asking winston smith our main character what does two plus two equal and he has to say four right because that's fact it just is four but they're like no it's five and they're conditioning him and so the question is what does two plus two equal and it does he say five or four and oh it's so powerful and actually i wanted to i was i was really wondering if this could come into this podcast episode i desperately want that as a tattoo I really want two oh. plus two does not equal five as a tattoo. Like, you know, the do not equal mm -hmm. sign that equal signs with a slash through it. I've always wanted that as a tattoo because um, I think that's that's pretty cool. Um, and like an homage to my favorite author. But that's that's a really fun fact. Actually. Nice. That's crazy. <laughs> Since reading this, I wrote this question before I read it. OK. And now I'm like, now I'm even more curious. Now mm -hmm. I really want to know because now I've got more context. Yeah. Your favorite standout moments from the book like if you think about this book what are the scenes or the like mm. emotions or however you want to fill it in that really make you feel like wow this this like left a mark I really remember this it's a great question because it's it's sort of like when you think back to a book you obviously don't think about the entire story you yeah. think about some standout moments as you say um for me the Definitely the first one that instantly came to mind when you sent me this question, when I, th I even just started brainstorming it, just instantly I was like, it's the moment when Winston starts to write. Mm -hmm. I think that that is pivotal to the text. Not only is it the catalyst moment, it's the catalyst moment, right? Like that, that is what starts our story. Right, because he's not allowed to have paper no. to write anything down. So even just having yeah. this notebook is like an act of defiance. It's a contraband item that he gets at a weird little antique store in a really sketchy part of town. He has to go and he finds it and he's like, oh my God, I'm, you know what? I think I'm going to try and take this journal home. And I think I'm going to try and write down my thoughts. And what happens when he starts to write it down, like write down what his concept of existence is and why he feels so unhappy. What happens is that he genuinely doesn't know what to write. He has never had a moment of self-expression. He's never been given the moment to write what he cares about or what he might want to write about. And it, I think it's such a great way of starting off this book of being like, this is literally how run down the, the people of this, hmm. of this world are. They genuinely can't even, he's like, he goes to write down the date and he's like, I think that's the date because he has no concept of time, right? One of the, yeah. one of the classic quotes from this book, 
He who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So it's this idea of like, literally they own time. Like they are the tellers of time. They tell you what's happening. They tell you when it is. And he's now trying to insert himself into time. He's like, no, I want to write my own story. And he's kind of not able to at the beginning, but then he gets better at it. So I love that moment. And I think about like, when I think about 1984 and I think about Winston Smith, I think about him sitting down to write. Um, I think it's also one of the strongest moments in the whole book. Mm. I think he started off, he started (laughs) off really strong. Not that, you know, it gets like particularly weak towards the end, but I just feel like, yeah, that. It's an exciting moment. That's a good old start. It's a really, it's a good start. And it's also like, I think really shows how excellent George Orwell is as a writer. That the fact that someone's going to write something in a book is exciting that's not really exciting. Like I can yeah. think of lots of other authors who would write it and you'd be like, oh, this is a really boring start to a book. A man journals. You're like, okay. But with Orwell, you're like, oh my God, the weight of the moment is so intense. Yeah, was that one of your standouts? So I didn't have the exact moment written down. Like I wrote down the opening for mm. sure. It's like so scary, like a horror novel basically. Yes. Um, and then I've actually put in him talking to the man at the charity shop, like secondhand shop. Yeah, and yeah. The idea that that exists, but there's no market for it because there's no supply and no one really yeah. wants to buy it. Yes. But just the idea that that was there. Yeah. Initially, you just get to know about it and there's a little bit more about it later on. Um, I, I found that quite interesting. It obviously like sets off something in him. He's yeah. like intrigued by it. Um, it's also a moment of like deep disappointment for him because he's like w- hoping that he'll kind of meet another person who is also like, you know, we're both downtrodden and we are both wanting to fight against what we're living. Right. Yeah. And the charity shop guy's like, Eh. I don't want to talk to you. I'm I'm fine. And it's like, Oh, this is so stressful. (laughs) And I think attached to that, which is very close to it is him meeting another old man, an even mm-hmm. older man, <laughs> yeah. and going, I can ask him. He'll know the past. Yes. I just need to, like, yes. get him to sit down, like, have a chat with him, and he can answer all these questions for me. And that man has no interest, or just doesn't, it seems like he doesn't quite understand him. Yeah. He doesn't really have the memory. Doesn't really remember. You know, because like, there's nothing to remember. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's this really innate innate feeling throughout the novel that time is passing in such a bizarre way that everyone just wakes up does what they're told goes to sleep wakes yeah. up does what they're told so there's almost no history it's always been like this and before it was even worse yeah so there's but, no point but that about the past that reminds me of my favorite quote from the book mm-hmm. which i forgot to look up hold on winston smith is thinking about how unhappy he is like mm-hmm. how unsatisfied he is and exactly like what you're saying he's talking to these different people but he's like am i the only one who feels this way like why do i feel like life could be better and the quote is why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestral memory that things had once been different and it's like this feeling that even though he can't prove it even though he has literally no evidence for it he has this feeling that things should be better Mm. And that moment for me is so powerful where he's like, I know it can be better than this. I don't know why I know that, but I just know that there is more to life than this. Yeah. Even though you have the feeling that this is all he's ever known. That that blows me over. That makes me want to cry. So basically one of my moments that I actually found hilarious mm. is when he is right on the edge of finding out the most pivotal secret. Okay. 
He's reading something. Yeah. <laughs> and he's reading it out to you. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, oh, I think it's, you know, I'm almost getting to the point. That's the point. Yep. And then he realizes that the person he's with has fallen asleep. And he's like, well, I'll go to sleep as well. And he oh, closes the book. And you're like, but what? I, excuse me, I was reading over your shoulder. <laughs> I want to know. Why did you stop? I think that that's the worst part of the book. <laughs> the part where he's reading yeah. that whole thing is so boring. Oh, yeah. It's so boring. I, I'm like, this was Orwell going off the rails a little bit. This I'm is like, the essay section yeah. of the book. He was like, let me just uh, write a couple essays in here. And you're like, oh, this is boring, man. <laughs> like, Let's get this out. Yeah. Um, and then the other bit was just like a tiny quote, but I really loved it. And it gives you a little bit of like, it's a tiny quote, but it gives you a, a big insight in yeah. the world just like catching all the lies that have been going on. And it basically is him saying, he's looking at architecture, he's walking through London Mm -hmm. and he says something along the lines of all the good buildings were from the Middle Ages. Uh, Which I find funny because we always go, oh, the Middle Ages, you know, they didn't do much. (laughs) And kind of making us look better and people, I feel like close to the Middle Ages did that to make the history that came straight after it. They, they wanted to make themselves look better. Yes. And they use that here as well as, you know, everything that the the party has done mm-hmm. is good. The stuff that happened in between doesn't really exist. And then there was the Middle Ages, which is far away enough that we can talk about it. Right. Um, and that the party keeps saying, you know, we invented airplanes. Oh, no, we, we even invented trains. <gasps> like they keep going further yeah. and further back. Such fascinating ways to do propaganda. Like, all these different ways to trick their people. You're right. It's so cunning. My only other one that I wanted to bring up, and again, this is just one of the ones that when I think about 1984, this really stands out to me as one of these fun, almost like we were just saying, like, propaganda moments. And it's this moment where he, um, like, I forget exactly if, if the government tells them that day that everything has changed or he's writing it or whatever, but basically... They're like, our enemy is no longer Eurasia. It's now East Asia or whatever. And there's this just complete, it makes me ask so many fun questions of like, who is in charge? Yeah. What are they doing? Is there actually other countries? That that was one of my questions. What is the rest of the world up to? Because you get no idea. Like, you know how in The Handmaid's Tale, you realize that this is basically just like, a couple of cities. It's not actually that big of a population that's doing this. And then in the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, you realize that like Canada is still the exact same as it is currently. And like other states in the States are. So people are like, can escape to it or whatever. With this book, I was like, I always have wondered like, is there other countries actually? Or like you're saying, are, is the government just making this up? Clearly they are just making stuff up because they'll just flop who our enemy is. They're like, we just won the bit that big war and now yeah. our enemy is this. And you're like, there's no enemy. <laughs> there's like, there's no enemy, right? Um, or it makes me think of Ender's Game, right? Where it's like, who is the actual enemy hmm. that we're fighting here? And then the whole plot twist is like, well, maybe we don't, maybe we don't know who we're fighting. I've realized that's a theme yeah. just now. <laughs> So I feel like that ties in nicely to talking about how this is a classic that has like stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I wanted to find some facts because okay. I remembered that there was a big resurgence in popularity of 1984. Um, and I wanted to figure out when those exact dates were. And mm. so I don't know if you remember this, but it apparently was when Kellyanne Conway in an interview after like Trump's presidency had started. I remembered it was around Trump's presidency. So in 2017, there was an interview where they were talking about 
uh, how it was like the most attended inauguration ever. Mm. And then Kellyanne Conway used the phrase alternative facts. <laughs> and everyone went, hold on, <laughs> alternative facts? And I think that was one of the moments yeah. that like made... 1984 kind of come up again. Yep. Penguin ordered 75,000 new copies to be printed. Wow. And there was a surge of 9,500% in sales. I'm Good guessing that was like God. from one week to the other. Yes. Or, um, yeah, wow. And then recently people have obviously been talking about the changes that have been made in the Roald Dahl books mm-hmm. and also talking about, you know, revision of texts and yes. original texts are being forgotten, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's the thing that's going to keep This book's never going out of print, basically. No, And I think, like, when you ask, like, why is this book still relevant? Why do we still like this this book? And why do we keep reading it? I think it's because we love books that predict stuff. Mm -hmm. And this book did that so well. So I think that's a big part of it, where it's like, it was predicting this kind of surveillance, like television surveillance, which... Orwell couldn't have really known about Mm -hmm. in the exact thing that we're thinking of, like CCTV and everything. Yeah. But here we are and it is CCTV and it is Big Brother watching you and you really can't do many things in private out in the street. Um, But then it's really fun to look at how some of the things he predicted have shown up or manifested in ways we wouldn't have imagined, Mm -hmm. like social media, where we're like self-surveilling ourselves, where we're just like posting ourselves all of the time, which is really interesting. Ultimately for me, it's that it shows our fears Mm -hmm. in a slightly uncanny way. So you're able to think about what's going on without really facing it right in the face, right? Without (laughs) looking it exactly in the eye. Because it's so over the top. Exactly. Wow, you know, it'd never be like this crazy scenario. And then you like pick it apart and you're like, "Mm, Hmm, interesting. Maybe not so far away, right? Like it, it shows our fears. It shows those things that we're nervous about. Like I think everyone feels nervous when you hear a politician or a pundit say alternative facts like that feels so deeply wrong because you're like no there's no such thing as an alternative fact it's a fact or it's not a fact in this book it's all about thought crimes and about double think and but then also like the changing of history and stuff so we're seeing those same kinds of themes but in a wacky way and so i think that gives us a way to talk about it and think about what's going on for us without it being a little like too literal I think a book that I really want to read is like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. That's yes. like that 800 page. I pick that book up every time I go to the bookshop and I'm like, not today. But I also want to read it, but I'm like, it's such a brick. Yeah. So I feel like it's it's kind of a different way of sort of playing with, with those ideas and thinking about them. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier about the idea of, does this book hold up on its own Mm. when you think about like, oh, it has a clear message. Is it almost like, you know, could have been an essay. Do you feel like you could read this without all the historical context? Because very Mm -hmm. often the question with classics is like, does it still do its job? At the time that it came out, people would have known because they were living in it. They would have known the historical context. But at the same time, you know, the historical context is like the Second World War. Like, it's not like we don't. (laughs) It's like not like we don't know about that. What do you think? Do you think you could read this? just as a novel? Does it hold up on its own? Is it mm-hmm. interesting enough to read just as a novel? I think it is. Maybe I'm <laughs> <laughs> slightly biased. Maybe I'm a little biased, but I, whenever I read 1984 or Animal Farm or any of his other books, I just genuinely take enjoyment from them. Like I do think 
basically that he recognized that his essays were reaching an audience, Mm -hmm. but not another audience. And he was like, I need to put this in novel form, a way that's going to be like a fun and interesting. Fun in a, in a specific sense, a fun and interesting story that people can follow along with. I do think it's exciting. The ending is so dramatic mm-hmm. and it's horrifying. Like it's so, this is not a fun ending, which is really interesting. And neither is Animal Farm. Like his books are very like, I'm really worried. And here's the worst case scenario. And you're like, oh yeah, that's dark. It's definitely a dark story. Mm-hmm. But like you said about Wuthering Heights and stuff, like just, it doesn't mean that it's a bad story or not, or not fun or interesting to read. Mm-hmm. It's still, a, I find it a compelling story, but I do find the part, it's a long section where he's like reading, the character is reading, boring, and I skip it every time. I might have been listening to that on the audiobook right before I went to bed. Yeah. And I think I, sl- you know, I felt, you know, when you fall asleep <laughs> and, and I missed 10 minutes and I was like, I think I can miss those 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to rewind that No, bit. it's not worth it. I don't think it adds anything to the story. Yeah. There's a book I read recently for a sci-fi book club called The Question Mark mm. by Muriel Jaeger, Jaeger from 1926. Okay. Which is so funny because the whole intro to the book, it's also like um, sort of like utopian, dystopian sort of future story. Someone gets transported 200 years into the future. Yeah. Very political. And the intro to that just says, well, she wrote it as a novel. (laughs) Is it good as a novel? (laughs) We're not sure. (laughs) But it's interesting. Interesting. And a lot of um, authors took inspiration from it. Brave New World is partly inspired Uh. by it. It's just, it's funny reading sort of like thinly veiled yeah. essays. Yes. And, but I do think this is definitely a way, way more successful it's more novel in its like story. I, I did always think, what's the plot of this? Like before right. I read it. And I don't think there's a lot of plot. There's not a lot of plot. But there is adventure and there is tension. Yes. And even though there's, you know, they're not moving to lots of different places or there's lots of story, um, there's lots of atmosphere and yeah. interesting things to think about. And it's easy to read as well, I think. It's it's a pretty yeah. like, speedy read. I read it like the first time or the first few times, like for essays and for school and stuff, because I was like studying it and stuff. As a person who read it completely outside of that context, did you find it compelling? Like you were excited to keep reading and you wanted to keep going? I mean, I think... Especially if you're, you know, you're reading this to talk about it. Sure. You're not just reading it. No, if yeah. It's a, if it's like a genre you're already interested in. Yeah. Would I reread it? Mm. No. Okay, there you go. I yeah. think I've, I've done, like I've had my experience with it. I didn't love it enough that it'd be like, oh yeah, I can't wait to read that again in the future, right. which I have had with other classics. Right. But I am very glad I read you're it. You're glad you read yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Right. Last bit that, I mean, I think is... Maybe one one of the more interesting parts of this book as well is mm. the way it's worked itself into popular culture, which you already right. talked a little bit about. So I'm just curious, have you read any other books that you feel like were inspired by this very heavily? Have yeah. you watched any other shows? Obviously, I found it hilarious when I figured out that Big Brother, the TV show, which I was way more familiar with than this book <laughs> before, like when I was a teenager. I know. That, that, that is dark. The fact that that show is called Big Brother is, was a, a choice. I know. It's almost sad. Like, it's almost... It's dark that I think it would be... I feel like I think it would make George Orwell sad to know that, like, this weird reality television was called Big Brother, but it's just about, like, people yeah. spying on each other. Like, to... to and I just don't creating know. drama just, it's and like drama. It's just, and, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. like, no political purpose whatsoever. One book that I think is really fascinating, if you like 1984 and you like classic, like, dystopian and stuff, is We by Evgeny Zamyatin. 
This was a book that I read for that course I mentioned, the dystopian course. Yeah. Yeah. And I had never heard of it and I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, our professor was like, this is a book that inspired 1984. And I was like, all right, um, cool. So we read it. To say inspired (laughs) is almost like absurd. Like, Did he pull a Shakespeare? (laughs) Yeah. Like this is like completely just ripped off from we. Yeah. And that does not bother me because I'm very, I, I don't know, I see writing in a really, uh, we're all doing this together way, yeah. like a sharing yeah, yeah, yeah. way. And you can read George Orwell's um, book review of We. Like, it, he didn't hide the fact that he yeah. read it, right? In We, it's written a bit earlier, and it's a Russian novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically, it's so fascinating. Like, okay, in 1984, you have the telescreens. Every room has this telescreen that's spying on you and is surveilling and watching you. In uh, We, every house is made of glass. Oh, so you can all you're still being surveilled and everyone can see what you're doing, but in a much more rudimentary form because yeah. it was written. No so technology. Much, no yeah. technology. It was written so much before uh, like the 40s when we have all of this like new tech coming up from the war and stuff. So you can see these like really interesting correlations. And then also like at the heart of we is a romance mm-hmm. between the two characters and the characters don't have names which is interesting like here it's winston smith but there it's like d503 and i think i i153 or something like that like they're they just have numbers for so there's like these really interesting correlations and but a lot of it is just like completely ripped off yeah. from. i think it's great i like i loved reading it and i like the historical context i'm like that is what we do we just interpret and then we rewrite it and there's a reason we remember 1984 and not we we is not very good to read it's difficult (laughs) to read it's kind of boring but it is fun if you like like this genre the other one i wanted to mention that i read really recently is the memory police oh i I mean obviously that came up front of mind when I was reading this I own it I have not read it yet I didn't enjoy that novel Mm. I really wanted to because I love speculative fiction and I should mention the the novel is by Yoko Ogawa I enjoyed it because like it was fun a little bit to spend time in an alternative 1984 Mm -hmm. so basically it's like heavily inspired by this world but in 1984 we have this kind of idea that the government is trying to affect your memory by like telling you different things yeah in the memory police somehow it does it's never explained but somehow the the government is literally affecting your memories <laughs> right so like you wake up one day and nobody remembers what a bird is mm-hmm. or and it starts really small it's like nobody remembers what ribbons are nobody remembers but then it starts to get really big like people don't remember how to walk right and so it's like a bit more speculative yeah than, like yeah. there's a magical realism yeah, 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 bent yeah. And I find that really interesting. However, I found it a very frustrating book to read. Like, I didn't enjoy the main character. I didn't feel like there was a plot. Like, it was more like a really interesting atmosphere and an interesting take on 1984. But then nothing really happened within it. And Mm. just at the end of it, I was just left with so many questions. I didn't understand why the government was doing it. I was like, why? Like, what's what? Do, what do you gain? And I, I don't understand. I don't understand. I didn't understand what's going on. So I found it to be very a little bit murky. Um, I I enjoyed reading something that was inspired by the book, but it just wasn't like quite for me. I'm very excited. I'm, I will I will be reading it. I do soon. know people that like it, so yeah. I think it was a me thing. And I'm glad I read 1984 first because I yeah. was at some point going to read The Memory Police. Yeah, first. I think it, you learn a lot, um, or you take a lot yeah. from having read this first. The other book that I'm glad I read first oh, before yeah. I read this is The Handmaid's Tale, which you already mentioned, mm-hmm. which apparently Margaret Atwood started writing 
1984. Classic. Interesting. Cool. Some heavy inspiration there oh, as well. Yeah. And having only read The Handmaid's Tale before, that on its own, you're like, oh my God, that is brilliant. Yeah. Still brilliant. But you can see the heavy Less inspiration. Original. <laughs> it's like, wow, putting a historical document at the end to kind of like flip <laughs> how you feel about it. Amazing. Oh, Orwell did it yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. And obviously it like takes on very different angles and very different topics, but I you can definitely see the things it has in common. Yeah. Um I had a note, which I don't know if we have time to talk about, probably not, about like the female characters in 1984. Not so interesting. Mm, not great, but also maybe the point of like how this character is thinking and how he's been told to think. I think it is a little bit of the point because like I think there there's no human connections. Yeah. There's a romance at the heart of this book that's the worst romance ever. You're like why do these characters like each other? What could they possibly talk about? But the idea is that like all of the relationships in this book are clearly um, arranged. Yeah. And he, him and his partner that he apparently had at some point, it didn't work out, but they didn't really report it to the government. And it's just sort of like, that is a thing that often happens. Like the arrangement doesn't work. And so there's like this really, this coldness of not understanding other people. Yeah. And I think that that no just empathy. goes- No empathy. No empathy, yeah. no compassion, no understanding. Yeah. But I think that that- goes for women as well, where it's like, he doesn't understand women. And therefore I think that's why the women characters are written that way. But I can definitely see an argument for it. There's just no women perspective. And then a more up-to-date cultural reference, mm. The Matrix. Right. Which, you know what? I haven't seen. Oh my this God. is one of my big gaps. I feel like I'm, I've done a pretty good job at filling most of my gaps mm -hmm. in my movie history. But for some reason, I've never picked up The Matrix. Okay, I feel like that could be your 1984 homework. Yeah. Very happy to do it. I've been meaning to for ages. Because again, if you've seen that, you'll sort of know that there's this waking up mm -hmm. from a world that you yes. think is the real world. Right. And I'll leave it at that. I feel like <laughs> if you've watched <laughs> we'll The Matrix, you know. Yes. <laughs> I feel like you could write endless essays about this book, as you have. As I literally done. have. It is such fertile ground. There's such fantastic quotes and like quotations and moments to, to talk about. Like, I really love writing about this book and thinking mm -hmm. about this book. And I think it was, I really do think it is the culmination of a writer at the very end of his life who was like, I'm putting so many of the ideas that I've I have. Get it out. I've got to get it out. So many of the ideas that I've been thinking about for decades, and I'm he, putting into a novel. And he had a young son as yes. well. So it feels like that. Yeah. Sort of like writing for the future. Yeah. As the main character does as well. I wish I could ask him about AI. Mm. If I... <laughs> this is like the theme of the moment. Yeah, my question to George Orwell is... <laughs> but if I could, I would just love to ask him about AI and about social media and like about the ways that we are now like self-surveilling mm -hmm. and posting our lives online. I'm like, I find this stuff so interesting and I wish that we could get like, no, like whatever, 1984, like... 2060 or 2084 or something you could uh do some role play with chat gpt and ask <laughs> yeah. chat gpt to pretend to be george Orwell <laughs> and have a conversation with him horrifying thank you so much for joining me ariel people can also find you at books unbound <gasps> the wonderful book podcast that yes. you do with raylene yes. i've been a guest on as well which was wonderful uh, one of my favorite book podcasts so definitely check that out Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited about your new project here. This is great. And yeah, I hope everyone checks out some more George Orwell. If anything, just go read something by him. I hope you feel a little bit more um, 
I don't know, a little bit more both relaxed and anxious about 1984. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you'll you'll give it a go as well. So thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode. You'll find all the books and anything else we mentioned in this episode, plus information on our wonderful guest in the episode notes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Sonne Vliegendhardt. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the podcast, you can rate and review the End of the World Book Club on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, or of course you can share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. You can also find us on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes, extra recommendations, and we sometimes watch disaster movies together. Thanks for listening. <laughs>